Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud. And we are rocking and rolling live on another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. A little while ago, I saw on Rebel News an interesting interview, and I thought, hey, I'm going to reach out to that Nicole Scheidel lady and see if I can get her on here. You're on Rebel, uh, talking about the incident that I've talked about a couple of times with the, the veteran that was offered the MAID program. And um, that hit you kind of close to home, didn't it? Yes, it certainly did. Um, both, well, professionally, we work with physicians who um, think that offering their patients death rather than treatment is not appropriate considering the Hippocratic Oath. And also personally, because my husband served and two of my sons serve in the Canadian Army. And under my husband's command, he had soldiers commit suicide. And it was really a struggle and we talked a lot about it after this story broke and he said you know it was such a struggle to get resources for your soldiers when they were suffering mental health resources and now how can you trust the system when you're going to ask for that and instead of getting appropriate resources they're being pushed towards uh, killing themselves anyways and let's hope it's a one-off. I haven't heard any other stories yet. I'm a bit of a center point in the community, so I think if anybody would have heard, it would have been me. Um, but that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. So I still got my fingers crossed that this was a one-off and it hasn't happened again. Are you satisfied with the apology from Veterans Affairs and their statement that that it isn't a policy and that they're not push, pushing made? Are you... Uh, Buying that well, line I'm them? sure I'm, I I believe them that it's not a written policy, but it's it seems to be part of the environment that this service agent seemed to think that was okay. Certainly, she told the as I understand it, she told the uh, soldier, the veteran who'd reached out, that she had previously helped someone access and made and, and commit suicide. So, to me, that suggests that she was very comfortable with that. She thought it was totally appropriate. And that she's at least done it once before. Yeah, that is correct. That is the claim that she made. And that is the reason for an investigation. Now, I've been pushing on this end for, for the Shadow Minister of Veterans Affairs, Frank Caputo, who's told me that they're pushing for an investigation to see if it actually, if she was just talking big or if it's actually been done. Um, so I don't know where that's at. I haven't, haven't had any updates to see if there's any progress, but let's, uh, hope and pray that she was just talking big and that it actually has not got over the finish line. Yeah, no, I think it's, it has to be of concern to everyone, particularly as made is being expanded to those with mental illness 
that will come into effect March 2023, that how do you decide who gets suicide prevention and who gets suicide assistance? And that is a big problem when we don't have appropriate safeguards. It's such a bizarre clash. I mean, all these veterans organizations that are out there, including my show, the said mission mission statement is uh, to fight against suicide, to keep people alive, to uh, give them hope so that they uh, don't take that as the final option. And yet we have this MADE program that as of March of next year, they're saying, oh, mental health issues? No problem. We'll just kill you. What a sol- and they're calling it treatment. <laughs> That's the right. opposite yeah. of treatment. It's, it's, it's like we're all being gaslit that this is somehow a, a legitimate medical treatment for, for mental health. Under what circumstances do you believe MADE is appropriate? Well, our organization doesn't think it's ever appropriate. There are there's really good palliative care tools that allow people who are suffering to um, live without that kind of suffering. You don't need to um, have people have unbearable suffering. There are palliative care tools available to relieve that, but most Canadians don't have access to it. So I certainly understand why people would want made when they feel like they are pushed into a corner and they have no other resources. But when we take all the resources away and don't give it to people, are they really making a a choice or are they getting pushed towards it? And I think it's just way too easy for the government to say, um, we'll just fully fund the MAID programs, but we won't fund palliative care. We won't fund mental health. We won't fund disability supports as appropriate. And then people are left really like you totally understand why they've gone there. I'm concerned about the vulnerable with this. Um, I was a respite worker for three years. I lived in a home looking after two adults who were developmentally challenged. So didn't have to uh, cook for them or bathe them, but um, still had to be there for support and to take them shopping and and whatnot. Uh, Both men were a little bit older than me, and one of them would have seizures on the regular. After every seizure, he would say, I just want to die. Now, that's just how he's expressing himself. But I'm concerned that the vulnerable, like my friend Leonard, um, somebody's going to hear that and go, well, we could do that for you. (laughs) And uh, say, he said it, so now we can do it. And uh, when that's not really what he wants, he just doesn't know how else to express himself. Right. Most people, when they say, I want to die, what they're really saying is, I want help. I want someone to relieve my suffering. I want someone to care about me. I want someone to help me out of the situation I'm in. But we've, because there's such a um, focus on autonomy and the idea that everyone has complete control over their environment and makes all their choices without any kind of... um, coercion, sort of like the strong individual who never has anything wrong in their lives. And that's what we base these choices on. It makes it really challenging for people who are vulnerable, who do have disabilities, who are, uh, you know, who don't have maybe all the resources that they want at their fingertips to help them, that they get pushed into corners and they don't have choices. Like, I mean, the politicians who made these decisions 
certainly have a, a far greater range of choices before them than most Canadians. Have you heard the recording of a Canadian in an Ontario hospital being pushed towards MAID and strictly as a budgetary decision? Yes, yes. That's Roger Foley. So he is in the hospital. He would like to be in the community. He would like the long-term, like the support workers. But for whatever reason, the system is not giving him access to be able to control that. So he's stuck in hospital. And so now they're trying to encourage him to end his life instead of giving him a medical assistance in living. They want to give him medical assistance in dying or they essentially want to kill him because he's not dying, but they're not giving him the supports to live. And it does come down to budgetary constraints and pressures and individuals in the administrative end of things stop seeing the people and start seeing the dollar signs. And certainly euthanasia is way cheaper than proper mental health supports. I think it was the early 80s when Soylent Green came out. I'm going to have to rewatch that movie because this is exactly what was depicted in that movie. Um, people were encouraged and incentivized to end their life early because they were expensive. Yes. Well, and then you think about what that does to us as a society, how it makes us callous and we don't have a capacity for tenderness or generosity anymore if we don't um, have people to be generous to. I mean, think about yourself working in respite. How did how did interacting with Leonard impact your life? Well, they were angels. Um, Matter of fact, a friend of mine opened a place called Workshop for Angels for people like Leonard. And there's something about have them, having them in your life, their lack of ego, and I don't know what it is, but they're just beautiful, beautiful people. And um, unfortunately, Leonard, uh, after his second COVID shot, um, had a massive stroke six days later, and he's still in hospital. I haven't been able to find out if he's still alive or not. But um, Richard, that I lived with, still calls me probably twice a week. And I haven't lived there in over 10 years. Yeah, so and I think... They're, they're, yeah, they're I their mean, family. Right, and you see how much they give to you. So if we take all the vulnerable out of our society, what kind of society does that create for us? Well, that's it. I mean, this idea, it's... It's a Nazi idea of only the the productive have a right to life. You know, so as soon as you're not productive, well, what does that mean? Does that mean everybody that's retired? You know, is the second you decide yeah. to retire, you no longer have value in society? Um, like, what is this protect, productive member of society that, uh, that has more value than others? Um, very concerned about how this made program is going and when it was first introduced the the entire conservative caucus voted against it and because they saw this coming and what was said is oh you're a conspiracy theorist of course made won't be expanded that's not going to happen that would never happen you're a crazy conspiracy theorist and it has expanded, and it's uh, you can go to the government website, which I have, and you can read what's happening in March of next year, how it's expanded to uh, mental health issues with very, very little barrier to entry. No, for sure. And even like right now, there's a petition going around because a young man who's 21 years old who has diabetes and has lost vision in one eye 
has now been approved for MAID for September 28th. And so you're looking at people with chronic diseases that are well-managed, that can be managed if you follow your treatment plan. And he was following his treatment plan, but he's decided for whatever reason. And you think that there's probably some depression going on here. So instead of saying, yes, I agree with you, your life is not worth living anymore and you should end it, like, how can we help you? Why do you feel like this? And his mother is just desperate to try and get some attention brought forward on this because, you know, he's he's over 18, so he can make his own choices. And it doesn't seem like the system or the doctors have reached out to try and see what family supports there are, how, what is really going on here. And so she is uh, trying everything she can to stop that, but it seems like... Um, it's a euthanasia train that's coming down the track for her son, and she has, like, no resources or no way of stopping that. Because he's blind in one eye. Yeah. And so um, and so, the, what does it say to people who are living with disabilities? You know, you're better off dead because we're not anyone like you should receive euthanasia. I had the experience with one friend. She went to um, the hospital with pneumonia over Christmas, she is wheelchair bound. And she said, you know, all they saw was a, a woman in a wheelchair who had pneumonia. And so they offered her um, to not do, give her oxygen if she didn't want it. That she, you know, there was a way, <laughs> a way for her not to get treated if that's what she chose, which is just uh, horrific. Like if you go to the emergency room, clearly you're going because you want help. I wonder what Stephen Hawking would think if he was still alive. You know, uh, a fellow that had no ability to speak, limited ability to communicate, and uh, yet was celebrated in society. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, I think we sell people short. We don't look at the ways that they can contribute, but also the meaningfulness in the relationships that they have. I mean, you think about the relationships you had with the individuals you lived with and how meaningful that was to you. I think about the individuals I've had in my life who've had a range of disabilities. And first of all, I don't know how you really define productivity. Some days I'm not very productive. And does that make my life not worthwhile that day? Maybe, I don't know. But um, I, I think it's unfair, un, unjust to just measure life based on economic potential or economic output. I mean, we are human beings, which, and we're worth far more than that. And so as a society, once we start to shift that ruler, that shift the way we measure it, there's a lot of things that we lose. And we actually lose our capacity to be understanding and generous and give each other a break or a hand up when we need it. When was Physicians for Life stood up? When did that, when was it created? So it was created in 1975, and so oh. it's been around for a while. Um, but I would say the, um, yeah, our, our big focus right now, particularly within, in the medical profession, is how do you um, still practice medicine as a doctor with your moral convictions around the Hippocratic Oath and then somehow have to deal with this pressure from the government and from medical administrators to make euthanasia widely available. And there certainly is a pressure. There's a lot of physicians who retired rather than face it. 
There's physicians that have moved out of country rather than face it because there's a lot of pressure from the colleges of physicians and surgeons that doctors have to participate in this process, even if they don't believe it's appropriate. You have a master's of law and degrees in science and commerce. How did you uh, slide into this role? Um, just, <laughs> I was just, I, actually, I was looking for work and um, I was uh, changing, like in a position of changing jobs. And this role came across my Facebook feed in 2018. And I thought, oh, that looks really interesting. I like to try that out. And uh, I applied and they hired me. So it's been a bit of a learning curve because I don't have, or I didn't have a medical background then. I feel like I have a medical background now just from everything I've had to read and, and work with physicians. I mean, particularly, we mostly do education. So we mostly focus on education, but we do do some um, some work culturally and politically, particularly around the issues that really impact uh, physicians. How big, is, so this is, how big is Physicians sorry, of Life? Like how many signatories are there? So we have um, a little over 4,000 physicians who are involved with us um, from medical students all the way through to retired physicians. And uh, so that's a fairly large physician association um, in Canada. On your LinkedIn profile, it says that you like talking about dementia and brain health. How does that tie into everything? Okay, so um, I also have a a company, FitMinds, and so we create programming for seniors who are suffering from dementia. And so that's also kind of ties into the whole euthanasia um, train, I guess. It does. You could say so. I think, and maybe you'll have this experience from working in respite care, that if you don't have the tools and resources to support the person it's very hard. And so one of the things that we tried to do back in 2010 was create resources and uh, tools for caregivers, both in retirement homes and long-term care homes, and also for individuals who are helping their mom or dad at home. So cognitive stimulation therapy tools that they could do with their mom or dad to help maintain brain health. And so we create this programming and we uh, sell it across Canada, the U.S. and Australia. On the Joe Rogan Show, eight, number 1870 episode, episode 1870, he had just had uh, Max Lugavere on. I listened to it the other day, and they get into uh, brain health and dementia and some of the causes and the misnomers. What are some of the, um, the, the, the ideas in the public sphere that just aren't true? What are some of the myths of uh, dementia, and what, what's the truth of it? What have you discovered? Well, I would say, first of all, that you can still have a relationship, a friendship with someone with dementia. Um, I've had great friendships that I really value with people that I've worked with who had dementia. And so the maybe some of the cognitive, um, the really high intellectual stuff may disappear from a person's conversation, but the emotional connections are still there. The friendships can be there. The laughter is still there. And so I think the idea that people who have dementia are not people is inaccurate. Max Ligavere, uh talked about some very 
effective treatments for, for dementia that uh, I've never heard of before. Uh, some of it is sauna, and some of it is cold, and um, just various things. And I've had on the show a couple of times Dr. Bonnie Kaplan, uh, who is the author of The Better Brain. Are you familiar with Bonnie? No, I'm not. Okay. Well, uh, her book is a bestseller right now. It, it came out um, less than a year ago. And the the bottom line, <laughs> it's a big book. But uh, the, what it boils down to is that the brain is a hungry, hungry hippo, and our food isn't nutritious enough anymore to feed it correctly. So the only way to keep your brain in good shape is with broad spectrum multinutrients, um, not just something from Costco, but like the good stuff. And there are two manufacturers here in Alberta that, that make the good stuff. So you take this on a regular day, uh, on a regular basis, your brain is now better, better fed. And um, everything from mental health issues like depression, anxiety, these are all been shown markedly, uh, a marked drop in all of these things. And because the brain is working better, there's better cognition, and it helps to balance out uh, dementia. So that would be, I can make that introduction if you want to have a chat with her. Yeah, no, absolutely. That would be great. And I think that's something that, like what you bring up is really interesting, is that there's so many things that we don't understand about the brain, about keeping it healthy, particularly in the mental health realm, and uh, depression, dementia. And if we cut ourselves off from focusing on trying to cure instead just kill we actually really diminish the possibilities for everyone because if there's no one around with uh, a mental illness because they've all been assisted suicide then we have no kind of compulsion to try and solve these problems and it's just all of us suffer right so someone who is concerned about brain health who thinks about these things, who does research. Well, if there's no reason to research because not, no one's around to benefit from the research, then like at the end of the day, we're all going to suffer. And sometimes having those people in our lives push us to try and find solutions for them. It certainly pushed me to try and find a solution for someone with dementia. And I've lost Nicole. Obviously pushes someone like Bonnie to find solutions when she's trying to help people maintain their brain health. And um, I think that's why it's really important that we don't look for short-term solutions that seem really easy and cheap and it's going to solve our problem, but in the end it causes more problems than it solves. The system is so predatory because offering made really to me what it's saying is, look, we, we don't know what else to do because we don't have the ability to, to help you. We've tried and it doesn't work, so... Here's made. If we, it's really a shortcoming of of the system because people only choose made out of desperation, I would think. And uh, but there are solutions. The efficacy rate of talk therapy, and I've got this from the inside numbers at the OSI clinic here in um, in Calgary, and from around the world from different people I've talked to. And the efficacy rate of talk therapy is only between 12 and 16%. Some of that is competency. I'm sure there are some outstanding therapists that have uh, that are somewhere around the 50% range or maybe even better. But all in all, for whatever reason, 12 to 16%. So that's not very good. And it's been shown again and again that um, 
psychiatric medications have even less. They have actually almost no effect beyond the placebo effect. Oh, I feel great. That's the placebo effect. And that's been shown again and again and again. Whereas stuff that actually works, like psilocybin or meditation or cold therapy or so many others, things that actually work aren't understood. Therefore, they're not prescribed. They're not encouraged. They're not supported. They're not funded. So I have run across therapies that are well north of 80% efficacy. That, that, and they're just not pushed. And it's predatory because when you're depressed, you don't have the oomph to get up and do something to help yourself. And if you don't even know what it is that you could be doing, you don't even know where to start, then you just stay in bed and you stay in that negative, yeah. negative spiral. So there are people that can be helped. They're just not being helped. And instead, they're offered the final solution. It's um, ghoulish. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing that's concerning is the the legislation, the way it's set out, does not require anyone to follow any treatment plan before they choose mate. So they don't even have to try to get better. And you just think about someone who is depressed. How good is their decision-making capacity if they haven't even given any kind of treatments uh, a try they haven't had any help and they feel just terrible and are kind of feel like they're stuck in a deep hole and decide that killing themselves is the only way out and someone comes a doctor comes along and says yeah I agree and I'll sign off and certainly there are people who go doctor shopping for this they get no from one doctor and they keep going around till they find a doctor who will sign off and that's uh, a concern as well, that there's no kind of standard approach. It's one hell of a retirement plan. You know, it's, it's frustrating for so many reasons. I have uh, personally, and I want the listeners to, for anybody who's listening to this for the first time, they don't know me, they don't know the show, uh, I struggled with suicidal thoughts for years and years and years. Like, they were a plague for the longest time. Um uh, accumulating to about a year and a half ago, I actually had a, some really big stuff going on, and I uh, had a suicide attempt. Uh, I actually took a crack at it. But that is now all past because I'm using the tools that I have found by doing the research that I need to do with the show. And now just the very thought of suicide for myself is repugnant. Like I couldn't, I can't even imagine how I could have ever have been in that dark place, much less being in that dark place for so long. So I I am sharing that right now because for any of the first-timers or the people that um, aren't familiar with me or this show or my background, um, I get it. I'm not an academic that's um, uh, sitting in an ivory tower somewhere. I get it. I'm a lived experience guy. And I'm telling you, healing happens i'm still here i'm still doing it and i don't have suicidal thoughts anymore like they don't pop into my head it's not even within the spectrum of maybe they're gone and um hopefully stay gone and i I do a lot of work to make sure that i stay level but it requires work so if your choice is do the work or die well, all right, <laughs> you know, I, I would suggest doing doing the work because work is not a dirty word. 
um, it's a it's a source of pride and confidence because when you are doing the work, uh, you feel good about the promises that you've kept to yourself. You you feel good about the accomplishment. You feel good about where you've gotten to because you remember where you were. So there is hope is the bottom line. There is healing, and you don't have to use the the, the final option. I I made it through. And I'm, I'm sure most people can as well. Yeah, and I think that's really important for people to be able to have confidence in the system. And so, and in the doctors they interact with, that they're going to help them, that the oh, best, that, and they have their best interests at heart. And you're right, it is challenging. And this current regime, without any safeguards, creates a big uh, blow to the, the trust that should exist between a patient and their doctor. And it's very challenging. And I think it's something that, well, let's just say veterans affairs, let's take them as a small example. They should have regulations in place that someone like a service agent cannot suggest this. It has to be patient initiated. And even still, it's really what they should be doing is getting them the resources to live and thrive, not the resources to kill themselves. And until they've really tried to live and thrive, you don't suggest to someone that they take the easy way out. Yeah, it's um, spectacular where people's heads are at. Some of the people supporting the MAID program, because they are working in or around it, um, the comments that I'm seeing on social media say, oh, well, I can understand. Like, people are just squeamish about, about death, but really, you know, it's a good option. It, and it, I heard it called treatment. <laughs> Death is not a treatment. It is the opposite of a treatment. Treatment is what you do to help somebody, not to end them. The, the ultimate injury is, de- is murder. So yeah. I, I don't know yeah. where these I people's mean, heads are. Well, I think part of the thing is using the language to make it, to normalize it, and then also to make sure that it gets well-funded. So if you call it a treatment option, it's well-funded under the Canada Health Act, Um, It's better funded than palliative care is, which is like, where are our priorities? Um, You know, you have to question that when that is, when made funding is required and palliative care funding is not required under the Canada Health Act. So, and there's also been a diversion of funds. So funds that were supposed to be for palliative care are getting diverted into paying for uh, euthanasia. And that's a big problem. And so it's like part of it is just where's the money going and how is it being used? And that's why you have the, the change in language, right? That it's a treatment, that it's appropriate care, and, and it just isn't. No, that's, that's the opposite of care. It's assault. <laughs> it's, it's murder. You know, the, the, uh, that used to be a crime. I'm pretty sure it still is. And yet, uh, if, you, if you're wearing a lab coat, it's compassion. So a crime wrapped up as compassion, it's absolutely unbelievable. Well, I think we're about well, there, um, sure. uh, Nicole. Is there anything else that, um, that needs to be said on the topic that we haven't covered? No, I, th- I would just say that this is a, an issue that we're following closely and continue to push on. So if you want to keep up to date with what we're doing on it, uh, we have a dedicated web page called nosoldiereuthanasia.ca and if you go there and sign up for the petition we will keep you informed of the work we're doing in this area um, because we find 
it, it is really important, um, both personally and professionally. I think this is something that is well within the government's capacity to fix, and it doesn't take a big fix to do it. So we'll just see if they're if they follow through on their word. The news cycle has already come and gone on this one. I mean, it was an international story. Um, somebody just told me yesterday that on Croatian news they were covering the story about the soldier that was offered made, and um, but. Since then, the Queen has died. There's a new leader of the Conservative Party. There's all this stuff going on. The world keeps marching on. And it seems like the story has petered out on, um, uh, in, the, in the public mind. And only those that are most closely affected are still, um, where it's still, the fire is burning bright. On your end, when the story first came out, um, was there a lot more people like was there a lot of activity on your on your end with physicians for life well i mean we're following there's been a number of stories through the um summer about individuals who uh, couldn't get proper housing so they cho- chose death they had environmental sensitivities they chose euthanasia um they were offered roger foley as well that story broke so that's been going on for a while so I think there's a general reluctance to engage with a number of these stories with the mainstream media because they it's not part of their narrative in terms of the problems with this the euthanasia regime. It, it, they are much more supportive of it generally. So I think that's a problem just to get those stories heard. Um, it's something that we try and keep a very close watch on. We have doctors who are... Um, going before committees in parliament to talk about these issues. We try and talk to MPs about this on a regular basis. We continue to raise it. When we put up the, our petition page after the story broke, we within a few short days, we had over 2,000 signatures on that page. So I think it does, people are concerned about it. It may not be in the news cycle, but I think there's a great deal of concern, particularly through the veterans community, and also um, just within with physicians as well, that this is really going too far. Well, I don't think people understand just how low the barrier to entry is. Um, the one fellow that you, that you had mentioned, blind in one eye and has diabetes and has been approved for May. Do you know if it's scheduled? Yeah, September 28th. Oh, right. You said that. So blind in one eye and diabetes doesn't seem like... I don't. I don't understand how that could possibly, possibly be a, be approved. Are there any examples that you can think of that were even a lower barrier to entry, where people has uh, been able to get um, a made appointment, or where it's already been completed? Well, so there was a story of a woman with uh, chemical sensitivities. So she she was living in. So she had sensitivities to the environment. She was living in subsidized housing. And there was a lot of cigarette smoke and marijuana smoke, and it was really affecting her ability. She couldn't go out of her uh, apartment. And so she was trying to get, be able to move, and she couldn't get a change in housing. So she reached out and sought euthanasia, and she was euthanized. So she was killed over cigarette smoke. Yeah. And completed. So somewhere out there, there's a team of doctors that say, yeah, that seems reasonable. Yes, there are some there are some enthusiasts on this at this end who think that 
um, you should be able to choose to commit suicide for any reason. It's way worse than I thought, Nicole. Well, I mean, they're also talking about extending it to children. That's the next... um, Who's uh, talking about extending it to children? So Dine with Dignity is the uh, euthanasia lobby group in this country. They have great access with uh, the Liberal government. And certainly David Lametti, the Minister of Justice, their office is considering extending it to what they call mature minors, so up to the age of 12. So if you were 12 and um, wanted to access euthanasia and met the criteria, you would be able to do that without your parents' consent. Sweet mother of God. You can't get a tattoo, you know. Uh, we don't yeah. let kid, uh, a kid drink alcohol to, because it's not good for them, but death is the worst thing. <laughs> Well, it's, it's kind like, of final. I, I, can't, I, yeah. I, I, I can't even imagine where these people's heads are to even consider this for a moment. Well, they have a very different view of human life and um, and relationships. And one of the problems is, and this happened out in BC, a family took their brother to the hospital because he was suicidal and he had suffered from depression. And so they... Um, checked him in because they wanted to get him help and he was euthanized and they didn't they didn't find out that he'd been approved until after it was done and they had no way of stopping it so people are have are even though it's not uh, officially on the made website people have been euthanized for depression yes when did that happen the the example that you're talking about so Alan Nichols, I think that was um, two years ago now. And this is exactly what was said when the legislation was fought to open up the MAID program. And yet here we are. The quote-unquote conspiracy theorists were 100% right. And even extending it to our children... It is, um, it's beyond imagination. And I, I really hope that to everybody listening, now that you're hearing the actual examples, if you are also upset about this, please share the heck out of this show. Stomp your feet and clap your hands and make as much noise as you can because politicians mostly care about getting voted in. So if they can smell that the winds are blowing in the opposite way, they're, they're going to listen to that. And they'll listen uh, to it because they, they want to keep their jobs. I'm absolutely flummoxed with all of this. I, I did not expect our conversation to uh, reveal this kind of stuff, Nicole. I had no idea. Yeah, it, it is very concerning. So when the whole... Um, rejigging of the euthanasia uh, regime happened. The government appointed three committees, one committee to look at um, made for mental illness, one to look at made with advanced directives, and one to look at made for mature minors, they called it. And all three reports came back with lots of cautions. And the government six months later said the reports were out of date and they were going to move ahead anyways. 
So um, I'm not sure who they listen to or who they take into account, but certainly the disability advocates have had a hard time getting in front of the government to talk about their concerns. The psychiatrists who are really concerned about this are being dismissed by the government. And so I think the government has an agenda on this and they're pushing pretty hard to take it forward. So I think it's really important to let them know that you're concerned and not happy about it. Well, it seems like this is the solution for carbon footprint, honestly, Um, that every useless feeder, as some of the elite look at us, um, that every person that uh, is not useful or valued in society, well, they're just part of the carbon footprint and they're part of climate change. So what better way to get rid of them? It, it, it really seems like it's that cold and callous. It's beyond budgetary. It's, um, I think it's in impartiality, the most extreme of the environmental uh, crowd that are, that are demanding this. Because everybody has a carbon footprint. <laughs> yes, I do and you do. That's for sure. Everyone does. But I, I, yeah, I wonder what their view of life is and what they think the purpose or the common good is what makes our communities worth being a part of. And our communities are more than just, and our lives are more than just being economically, uh, economic units, right? Like we're more than that as human beings and our relationships and our support of each other. And also what we owe people. There was a great cartoon. I think it was in the London, um, newspaper like the london ontario newspaper it came out around remembrance day and it showed an old vet standing and in his shadow was the young soldier he was and it was kind of like what do we owe people and people built this country and so they they we owe them something and we owe the people the seniors in our lives because they created the country and the civilization and the communities that we now get to take advantage of and we'll do the same for our children and so then our children owe us too right to take care of us and to make sure people are cared for right until the end of their days it doesn't seem like it's much of a uh, of a jump that this made program the way that it's going if it continues in this direction i mean what's next everybody over the age of 75 is euthanized I think there's going to be real pressure for completed life. You've completed your life. Now it's time to go. Yeah. Um, And certainly there was a a case, a court case where someone made that argument that they completed their life and it was time to go and they were able to get euthanasia. That's where it's going. You know, that's where, and, uh, and yet when uh, COVID was rapid and, and nursing homes were cleared out, by death, there is a lot of people rightfully upset and concerned about this. We've got to protect our seniors. Well, this is the opposite of that. It, you know, the, the exact same crowd uh, must have been cheering when the nursing homes uh, and the senior centers were cleared out because of um, uh, people dying from COVID. They must have been clapping their hands about it. Um, that's where this is going. Uh, do, do you think that that's a jump? Do you think it could go that far? Or do, do you think I'm, uh, that would be a bridge too far? No, no. I think there is a lot of pressure already building around this whole idea of completed life. And you see that 
um, being written about. You see it being talked about. You see the medical journals talking about the amount of money they can save in hospital costs with euthanasia, about um, the number of organ donations they could increase if people euthanize themselves for organ donations. So there, there's a lot of pressure with this idea that somehow human beings are to be used or to be um, discarded when they're no longer useful. That kind of underlying utilitarian philosophy um, just embed, is embedded in all of this stuff. We really are tax cattle. Uh, that's how the, the elite look at us. That's all we are. We're livestock, tax-paying livestock. When uh, the tax crop is no longer being produced, we're no longer useful. And instead of being sent out to pasture, now these uh, psychopaths that clearly run the world <laughs> are like, well, you know, you, you've uh, used up your usefulness, so we'll just euthanize you. Uh, it's, it really is the, the movie Soylent Green, which I will have to rewatch uh, soon here. Well, thanks for wrecking my day, Nicole. Okay, (laughs) I'm really sorry. You know what? There are really fantastic people in this world doing really good work. And I would say most people are not, are not there in their heads. Like they find this shocking. They find this troubling, Um, but people are busy. And certainly the pandemic, a lot of this happened under the cloak of COVID, right? People were distracted And so the government moved on this, they moved fast, they shut down debate, they pushed this through, and I think people generally weren't paying attention because they had, and rightly so, they had other things that were on their minds, but it is a big problem. I really think it's uh, the mentality of saving the planet for carpet footprint, I really do. And this is why. Um, In 1991, David Suzuki and Anita Gordon published a book called It's a Matter of Survival. I read it in 1991, and I was way—I was all the way on the inconvenient truth side. Um, you know, worried about climate change. I was deeply concerned about it. Um, I even voted for the Green Party once or twice, and um, so I was all the way on that side of things. I reread the book uh, a few weeks ago. I still have it on the shelf, and now I've lent it to my member of legislature. Uh, the overall theme, the number one problem, the way they saw it, was population. And it, the the idea was that we've got to do something about the population. Well, what does that something look like? Well, this is what it looks like. This is what the ideology is. And the, the truth is, is that we're actually facing population collapse, so we don't have to thin, manually thin out the herd um, to keep a population thriving you have to be reproducing at a rate of 2.2 in north america we're at about 1.7 or 1.8 so we're going to shrink naturally it's just just how how it is because we're not reproducing at 2.2 or better um so the population like we're already there and china one child policy it, they're already there um uh, the population of china is set to be cut in half over the next 20 years something like that and not, not, that, that isn't the exact number. But for whatever reason, people aren't looking at the math. They're not looking at the numbers and the trends. And they still think that um, population is the by far the biggest um, problem that we face. And we have to thin out the herd in order to save the planet. 
that's the mentality. Um, and that's right from 1991, and that's not where it started. They were just repeating um, mantras that have been uh, wrote, written about in different medical journals and environmental uh, studies since the 50s. And, uh, and here we are where it's actually actual policy and it's actually starting to happen. It's uh, absolutely diabolical and based on false numbers. It's based on bad science. It's, uh, it's just incredible that we're here. Who, who would have thought it possible? Yeah. Yes, but I think it's also uh, up to each of us to do our part to make sure that it doesn't come to that. So that's that's what I do with my days. <laughs> well, God bless you for it, uh, too, Nicole, because it's um, important work, uh, to, to say the least. I mean, preying on the vulnerable. We're supposed to be protecting children. We're supposed to be protecting our seniors. We're supposed to be protecting those that can't protect themselves, not seeing them as a burden and taking any opportunity that we can to euthanize them. It's... Um, it's truly a world run by psychopaths that anybody can even consider this. It is um, just beyond, absolutely beyond. But I think we're about there. I'm, I'm glad that we kept talking because uh, apparently there was a lot of digging that still had to be done. Um, unflippin' believable. Anyway, thanks for wrecking my day. Appreciate it. <laughs> I'm very sorry. <laughs> no, thank you so much, Nicole. And um, please keep doing what you're doing. And again, for the listeners, if you are equally concerned, if you are seeing us the way I'm seeing it, um, share, share like the sugar bear, because sharing is caring. And we need more of that in this world because it's a messed up planet. Nicole, please stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. With a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud.